Hey, y'all, before we get to the episode today, I have a quick announcement. Uh, we're having a live show in Los Angeles on July 30th, and I want you there. I'll be talking with John Cho, the famous actor who you know from the Harold and Kumar movies, from the Star Trek reboot movies. He's everywhere. And he has a new film coming out in August called Searching. It was already a big hit at Sundance. Anyways, I'm talking with him and the film's director, Anish Chiganti. We'll be all together on stage at the Lion Hotel in Koreatown on July 30th, and I don't want you to miss it. Go get tickets at nprpresents.org. nprpresents.org. Again, July 30th, Lion Hotel in L.A., John Cho, Anish Chiganti, nprpresents.org. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today on the show, Rain Wilson. You know him. We all know him as Dwight Schrute from NBC's The Office. In my humble opinion, one of the funniest shows of all time. Of course, that show's been off the air for a few years now, but Rain is still staying busy. His newest project is a little film that just got released on video and on demand and on Hulu. It's called Permanent. I don't want to give too much away, but I can tell you this. Permanent is this really quirky yet warm comedy about a family of outcasts trying to come together and embrace their weirdness. And Rain Wilson told me that that story is very much the story of his own childhood. He grew up in suburban Seattle. His dad was a painter and a sewer construction worker. And his family and he, they were all members of the Baha'i faith, this pretty small religion that preaches unity and love and being a world citizen. We talk about all of that and how his faith informs his work. We talk about his production company called Soul Pancake. That is the company behind Kid President, which was a big hit a few years ago. And of course, Rain lets me geek out on The Office just a bit. And we talk about life for Rain Wilson during and after being a part of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. All right, here's me and Rain Wilson. Enjoy. thing that I liked to find out about you was that uh, you, like me, uh, grew up playing a woodwind instrument. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, I was I was a bassoonist. That's the hardest one. That's You're a glutton for punishment. Yeah. Why started, would you pick the bassoon? I started on the clarinet, but... Why uh, don't you stick with the clarinet? It's so easy. I got duped. I got <laughs> duped by my band teacher. We had a lot of clarinets, uh-huh. and I really wanted to play the saxophone. I, I played the saxophone. See, okay, see yeah. the cool guys. You know, <laughs> played the saxophone, and it's a little easier than all the other woodwinds. No it one is, will tell you that. It it's a little, it is easier. A little easier. Yeah, yeah. but all the uh, the sax players got to wear uh, sunglasses <laughs> and like crazy shirts Wait, and like just the saxophone players. Yeah. That's not fair. So I wanted to like put on fun sunglasses and be with the saxophone. So you picked the bassoon. <laughs> well, and then I got duped. I'm telling you, the 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 band teacher, uh, his name was John Law, Johnny okay. Law for real. Oh wow. He uh, he said, um, uh, oh, there's this amazing instrument. You're gonna love it. People, girls are gonna go crazy for it. <laughs> and uh, it's called the bassoon. Wow. And. Uh, that was a terrible yeah. decision. Well, there's a whole th- there's this whole thing with the double reeded instruments and that community that makes their own reeds yep, and they're yep. just like out there. Like we're all band nerds, but the bassoon is another it's super, level. It's super nerd. Yeah, <laughs> and they, when they are indeed crafting their little yes. reeds yes. and having debates about what kind of bamboo they like to use. <laughs> was that you? Uh, no, I never went that far. But okay. I was pretty deep into nerd culture back yeah. in those days. But uh, what yeah. was the deepest nerd culture thing you were as a youth? 
Well, it it's there's there's no bottom to it, so it's it's a bottomless <laughs> web. It's a black hole of nerd Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, sure, you, okay. you name it, and any nerd thing. And I was doing it. So it was Dungeons and Dragons on the weekends. Bassoon, Model United Nations. Does that make you more into following international politics today? Definitely, yeah. yeah. Model United Nations got me very interested. That was my first going to be my first major was international relations. Really, and what did you major in? Well, drama, <laughs> and acting, and schmacting. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I, a couple years in, I, you know, I liked uh, tons of stuff. I loved history and psychology and English and stuff. But uh, I got the acting bug yeah. about my sophomore year, and then so I just went whole hog huh. into the acting world. What gave you the bug? Um, hmm. I think it basically comes down to um, the only chance I ever had with girls was being an actor. So well, I could make other them- ways. I, for me, that's the only thing that worked. <laughs> okay. I was so deeply nerdy. If I could make girls laugh, huh. um, then then I was like, I'm not going to play the bassoon. Yeah. I'm not going to you know, represent Nicaragua for Model United Nations. Yeah. I'm going to go do these skits and make people laugh, and then girls will actually like have meals with me. There you go. So it kind of, I think for a lot of artists, it kind of comes down to that. You interview a lot of musicians. It's the uh, same yeah. way. You know? Yeah, yeah. What so. school did you go to for college? I went to Tufts University in Boston, and then I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, and then I ended up at New York University for acting school. It, I always think of NYU. Was it the, the, the Tisch School? That's right. Mm-hmm. It, always, it always feels for me like it would be like fame, the yeah. movie. <laughs> it was like fame that cost 20 some thousand dollars a year. <laughs> yeah. So it was not free fame. It okay. was like- Expensive fame. Expensive fame. Yeah. 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 But there was a lot of that. There was a lot of singing, singing and dancing in the lunchroom on the lunchroom tables. There you so, go. Yeah. There you go. We'll get back to your early life, but I want to talk sure. about this movie, Permanent. Yeah. It's, as I watched it yesterday, I was like, this is a weird little movie. I like it. It's very quirky. It's very quirky. I love it so much because it captures for me the my reality in the 80s of having a really quirky, dysfunctional family hmm. um, with its own set of kind of strange rules of how things work mm-hmm. and uh, Colette Burson the the writer director uh, really talented woman she co-created that show Hung that was on HBO oh, yeah. for a while um, this was her life too we had so much in common huh. she um, in fact she sends me pictures of like her mom's cat pins that she wears <laughs> but uh, yeah it's uh, it's a it's a family uh, a small family uh husband and wife and a teenage girl living in Virginia in the early 80s and trying to get by in the world and discovering themselves and in a very, uh, on a real small level, it's me and Patricia Arquette. And Who was amazing in this movie. She's great. She's right? selling it. Yeah. You haven't seen that side of yeah, her, right? Yeah. It's kind of comedic and, uh-huh. um, and dorky. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's got a sweet it's got a sweet heart. It's got a lot of great messages in it. It's got a great message about race kind of woven yeah, in there, which yeah. was which was really cool. Which and so like just to set it up without giving away spoilers, it's called Permanent because the daughter in this film, uh, who was what like thirteen or so, yep, she um, is not satisfied with her hair, so she convinces her parents to let her get a perm, a That's permanent. Right. Yep. 
and uh, hilarity ensues. It's a really bad perm. The worst possible perm <laughs> you can. But it's really a movie about hair because yeah. my character is bald. I had to shave my head uh-huh. for the film. That's what I was wondering because I was like, because sometimes they'll put a little thing over your hair. Right. You actually shaved a bald spot into Sha- your head. Shaved the whole darn thing because I needed to jump into swimming pools yeah. when I was bald and yeah. et cetera. And um, plus you can just always kind of tell. So. Yes. Um, and so my character, uh, Jim, the dad, is obsessed with his toupee. And um, he's enrolled into a local college. And part of that college, because it's a small little Christian college, is you have to do swimming. And you have to pass swimming classes yeah. to get your degree, yeah. so, which is going to force him <laughs> to, to deal with that toupee. To deal with the toupee. <laughs> so you've got these... Um, this great family dealing with their hair and their identity and finding themselves um and um oh it's just a hoot it was it was really really interesting and like there's this wonderful kind of subplot about your daughter in the movie who has this bad perm she is white um and she's ostracized in a way with this perm in the way that like a black girl will be ostracized mm-hmm. and through that she ends up forming this very interesting friendship with a young black girl at the school who at first was like Get away from me, young thing. You don't know what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a moral of that story itself, the two of them coming together. And I'm trying to put my finger on it, but, like, what's the message in, in that plot line for you? I think that it's about finding family, and uh, it's about no matter how outcast you are, there's other outcasts to... To, to bond with, to come together with, to, to find uh, the most unlikely family. And I think some of the best comedy and drama comes from that search for, you know, the unlikely family coming together. Yeah. And the, the bonding between the daughter and the African-American girl, which is, is fraught. It's not, um, it's not sentimental and no. all, you know, kumbaya, feel good. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's very fraught. They're both bullied. But and they, they're kind of mean to each other. <laughs> yeah, and they're mean to each other too. But ultimately, yeah, that's I, I, why so I like this film so much. Is it? It has a slow build. It's quirky and strange and 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 funny and and odd. And you haven't quite seen anything like it before. But then by the end, it really gets you. Yes. I think it really gets you in the yeah. in the gut. Um, you know, the family has come together and and triumphed over their own fears. Yeah, and like owned their weirdness. Yeah. I think. The big message of the movie is, that, and the, and this is a line in in the film where it's like, all families are weird, just like every other family, mm-hmm. or something like that. Yep, you know? yep. And it's like that. That's so, that's so true. It's like you have to, at a certain point, accept your weirdness and be cool with it because it's fine. And that was that was my story. Yeah, that was my story. I had a very strange family. We were members of the Baha'i faith, and my dad worked at a a sewer construction company, but he was an abstract painter, so he couldn't wait to get home and paint giant I want to read his memoir. Canvases. There's a lot there. He also wrote science fiction books. So <laughs> I think he wrote a kind of a memoir, but he mostly wrote like really fantastical really? sci-fi books and huh. and my stepmom who helped raise me, she didn't she was more of a housewife, but very, very odd in mm-hmm. her own way. Yeah. And it was just the three of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were pretty broke. So yeah. we just, we drove an old Ford Pinto and lived in a little concrete rental house. And, huh. you know, a lot of my suburban Seattle friends had, you know, their parents had nicer cars yeah. and bigger houses and yeah. went to skiing on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And But that story of uh, embracing the, the mm-hmm. inner weird yeah. uh, of the family, I think, is is universal. Yeah. What about you? 
I was pretty, you know, we were pretty weird because my brother and I went to Catholic school for many years growing up until we went to public school. And in our Catholic school, we were the only black kids there. Mm. But everyone was, no one was like racist to us, but we were just like the only black kids there. Uh, my mother worked. She was a school principal and my dad was retired. So that was kind of a role reversal. So dad was kind of the soccer mom and he was older as well. Um, and I was just, I was such a nerd. And I was a nerd in a way that, like, I got to be in high school, and it was one of those things where it's like, all right, you're black and you're tall, but you don't play basketball? Right. What? You know, and mm-hmm. so just kind of, like, you define the norms. You write expository essays exactly. on speech. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that kind of thing. But I do think, and you probably feel this as well, like, there is a certain beauty in finding a community early on that is mm-hmm. all about your weirdness. Like, band kids love being weird together. And I'm sure model UN kids love being weird together. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that I found that. And I'm mm-hmm. sure you're glad that you found yours because I would have hated having to be weird alone. And you, you hear about that, I think, with a lot of kids in small-town America. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. they're ostracized yeah. and whether they're goth or whether yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, is it a lifestyle choice or exactly. whatever way that they don't fit in but exactly. when you're in a larger town you have that ability to find your to find your, your tribe community. yeah yeah all right time for a quick break when we come back rain tells me about his bahai faith what it is what it means to him and how it informs his on and off-screen work also don't worry we talk about the office in just a bit Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from Fracture. Fracture turns your favorite digital memories into meaningful photo decor by printing them directly on glass. They come ready to display out of the box, including the wall hanger or optional stand. Fracture prints are handmade in Gainesville, Florida. Give a unique gift or focus on the moments that tell your story. It's Been a Minute listeners can save 15% on their first order by visiting FractureMe.com minute. When the Supreme Court heard the travel ban case this spring... Donald Trump, President of the United States versus Hawaii. One family's story came up in oral arguments. This is a 10-year-old daughter in Yemen with cerebral palsy who wants to come to the United States to save her life. What happens to that girl and her family? On the next Embedded. On the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that I found really interesting about you, um, you're Baha'i. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of listeners might not exactly know what it means to be Baha'i. I was thinking back on my experience with that faith once I began to read about you being in the faith. And I was like, I remember as a kid, I would see like these infomercials for it at night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that was it. Right. How would you describe the religion in like 30 That's seconds? That's funny because I remember <laughs> that exact period of time when they they were running those infomercials. I forget. Was it? And like, it was like a bunch. In the 90s, Yeah. Think, it like, was like a multiracial cast of very happy people like running through fields and stuff. <laughs> yep. It was, yep. It was. That's really, what yeah. being a Baha'i is about. <laughs> um so, yeah, so you're asking, like, just the, the primer of basics for yeah. the listener? Yeah. Yeah, so Baha'is believe that there's only one God and th- that all of these religious faiths on the planet are worshiping the same God. They might call him Allah or the Great Spirit or Jehovah or whatever you, you might call it, but there is only one creator. Mm-hmm. And that this creator educates humanity spiritually by sending uh, specially appointed divine teachers down every 500,000 years or so. So 
uh, but they're all coming from the same source and they're essentially delivering the same message. So hmm. Krishna and the Buddha and Abraham and Moses and Jesus and Muhammad, um, you can certainly look at some things that are quite different about mm-hmm. the faiths. Most of those things arose in the hundreds of years after the creation of the faith. But the, if you look at the essential message of those divine teachers, it's very much love. It's basically <laughs> love, <laughs> unity, work yeah. together, uh-huh. don't get attached to material things, huh. uh, grow your soul, essentially. It seems like all of your work, when I look on it, especially the stuff that you've done post-office, seems to be informed by this like mission of good. I'm thinking about Soul Pancake, thinking about your work in Haiti. Um, are the good things you do, and even like the really like the core of this movie's message, permanent, is good and uplifting too. Like, how much of that is informed by your faith? I think a lot is informed by my faith. Uh, one of the important things about the Baha'i faith is quite simply that we're world citizens and that it is our spiritual responsibility and journey to try and make the world a better place. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, says, be anxiously concerned of the needs of the age you live in hmm. and and to tackle the big issues of the day that you live in. So yeah. you will meet Baha'is uh, digging into racism and digging into economic injustice and, and disparity and you know, women's rights and gender issues, poverty, education. Um, so there's about five or six million Baha'is all around the world. And How does that rank with the other religions? In, it's a small number. It's very small. Okay. Yeah, there's, it's very, very small. I mean, I, there's probably some mega churches <laughs> in the United States that have more than five or six million <laughs> members. But it's very spread out. That's the really cool thing about it. It's the second most widespread of the world's religions. And if you go, and as I've been to like Iceland and looked up the Icelandic Baha'is, <laughs> and there's all these Baha'is in Iceland, and you go to Samoa, and there's Baha'is in Chile, there's Baha'is and huh. you name it they're they're all over the world and they're working for you know peace and love and unity and you know all the basic stuff and working and especially working with people of other religious faiths yeah. and trying to b- build bridges what's the Baha'i church service like so the Baha'is do not have any clergy so huh. they also don't really have churches per se there huh. are what are called houses of worship that are on every continent um, uh, but well, it'll be we'll meet in someone's house or mm-hmm. a, or a basement or a community center or something like that. But it's very democratically elected. Okay. Uh, so Baha'is and we're in Culver City right now. There's some I don't know. There's maybe fifty or Baha'is in Culver City, and they elect the nine most wise people to govern hmm. the affairs of the Culver City Baha'i community. Huh? Yeah. Is there music? There's music. Sure. Yeah. A lot of music. music. Yeah. What kind of music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all kinds, all okay. kinds. Uh, okay. Go to, uh, I, I do a lot of work with a friend of mine on something called Baha'i Blog, baha'iblog.net. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, they have a huge music project. So they're, they're, they're recording Baha'i folk music, roots music from all over the globe. So you'll, huh. you'll get a sense. Some, okay. of it is, okay. uh, some of it's better than others. <laughs> uh, it's kind of all over the place. But, yeah. but Baha'i Faith actually grew... Uh, a lot in the United States in the 60s and 70s during the hippie years ah. when people were kind of on a spiritual mission. Okay. And oddly enough, because racial unity and the elimination of racial prejudice is so important in the Baha'i faith, the Baha'i faith is the second largest religion in South Carolina. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. B- bigger than Judaism, bigger than Islam, uh, bigger than Buddhism in South Carolina. Southern Baptist and Baha'i. Yeah. In so, South Carolina. Uh, <laughs> number, uh, it spread quite 
uh, a lot in the African-American community during those decades huh. as well. Huh. Yeah. You were a security guard for a Baha'i worship center in yeah, high yeah, school? Yeah, there's Baha'i House of Worship and just north of Chicago. It's a beautiful building, and uh-huh. uh, my parents were working at the Baha'i National Center there, and I was a, I was a security guard. Um, <laughs> were you very, a strong, burly security guard? I was a, a slender, pimply, uh, <laughs> unassuming, nerdy security guard. Okay. Uh, I would have a science fiction book in my back pocket and like pull it out <laughs> behind a shrub and you know be reading Robert Henlon when I was supposed to be uh, yeah. keeping out invaders yeah were you ostracized for being Baha'i I'm gonna leave Baha'i alone after this I just find it really fascinating but yeah, like no I mean, it's alright were there folks who were just like what is that what are y'all doing no, definitely people thought what is that that's crazy and that sounds weird and it's probably a cult so people you know I got a lot of that kind of general energy but no one treated me bad for mm-hmm. it so I was really fortunate in that yeah. way um Baha'is in Iran have it really bad. That's where it started huh. in Iran, and it's the largest religious minority in 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 Iran. Huh. And um, they're treated bad and and beat up and imprisoned and tortured, and uh, all huh. their rights are taken away. And it's mm. it's a really horrific human rights uh, tragedy. What's yeah. happening to the almost half a million Baha'is uh, in yeah. Iran? Yeah, wow. But not to the Baha'is from suburban Seattle. Yeah, or South Carolina. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. <laughs> so, like, a thing I did not know that you're behind Soul Pancake, mm-hmm. which is behind Kid President, that sure. really cute video series of this young little black boy uh, giving you inspirational, motivational talk as Kid President. As soon as I figured out that you were behind and behind that, I was like, oh, this is like an article of faith. This is like a space of uplift. This is like, a, like I mean, it, it seems like, is it one of the more Baha'i things you've done? It is. It's a... Uh... It's very Baha'i-inspired in mm-hmm. that, um, listen, the most important principle in the Baha'i faith is is unity. Mm-hmm. And what unifies us is our common elements of being a human being. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, what we see right now is greater and greater factions and disunity and kind of silos. Uh, and I think this will continue to get to get worse. And... Uh, so we're just simply trying to say we're all human beings on this planet. Uh, we sure could use some uplifting messages, and that's, that can bring us together. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's great about the channel is we go to red states and blue states mm-hmm. and uh, people of faith and people of not faith mm-hmm. um, and city people and country people and we really have a diverse crowd yeah. uh, on our channel. So yeah. that has been exciting. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm really interested in, especially post-election, is like what are the spaces and places and faces that can like help bring us unity? Because we're not going to become unified as a country through our politics right now. No. It's not going to happen. Mm-mm. And like I feel like the entertainment space and people that you see on TV and in the culture – they can do the most, I think, to unify people without them even knowing it. Mm-hmm. Like a really good, smart, thoughtful TV show can bring together people from red and blue states. A really interesting web series can bring together people from all over the place. Like, do you feel, as someone who is an entertainer, do you feel a little more responsibility or urgency or pressure to make content that unites in the given the political moment that we live in right now oh absolutely yeah and i think the the first thing that popped into my head when you were saying that is anthony bourdain um god bless his soul yeah uh, who did that you know had a 
it doesn't matter if you're a red state, you know, yeah. gun-toting, truck-driving yeah. guy. You, you, you love food and you love you him. Love, you love food, you love him, you love uh, his what he stands for. And everyone could agree he brought people together and, and, and unified people. And, um, yeah, it's, it's so hard right now uh, in, in the politics and it, and, it, and it tears you up. Well, and it's it's like it's not even just like the weird culture of our politics has seeped into every other part of our lives. Yeah. And so the anger and vitriol that you see in political discourse, mm-hmm. it's about everything now. Uh, and, and like there's there, there's a, there's a certain level of absolutism even about the culture that we consume. And the Internet is partly to blame and the media has a large part to blame because, you know, these the headlines that you click on, whether you're looking at Fox News or MSNBC mm-hmm. or wherever you're getting your news source, Huffington Post mm-hmm. or Breitbart, yeah. you're going to click on the things that outrage you, that create the most outrage. Yes. So yeah. it's we live in a culture of outrage yes. and that the media fuels. Like, mm-hmm. can you believe this? Like, <laughs> You will not believe. Yeah, literally. A, a man, a millionaire only tipped a waitress $1. What? You know, <laughs> whether it's that or whether it's about race or whether it's about... Uh, yeah. politics or gender or whatever it is that you you click on those things that make you more outraged. I know like my mother-in-law watches M- MSNBC constantly. Did you read that New York Times piece about the new, uh, so I'm like, quote unquote, uh, my MSNBC mom. There's a whole category oh, no. of exactly. like older women who just yep. like get their wine in the evenings and watch MSNBC. That's exactly what she does. <laughs> she takes her wine and listens and is just like, and she texts my wife like, can you believe this? And can you believe that? And can you believe that? And yeah, so we're not going to find it through politics. So yeah, um, this is what we, this is what we try and do. Um at Soul Pancake, I don't know if we're making any any headway. I don't know. I think you know, everyone loved Get President, man. You know, like they, they did, and we you know we have a couple million viewers, but you know there's other YouTube channels that have that you can watch people content. sensational content or watching people play video games that have 20 million yeah. followers. So yeah. so who really knows? But we you know we try our best. We do our best. Yeah. You know, speaking of like this outrage culture that exists right now, thinking about like work that you've done before. In this current media climate and outrage climate that exists online, half of the office could not get made. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. could you could y'all get away with that stuff now? Yeah, we we couldn't. No. I think the office would get hit by the right and the left if it were being made today. In the in same way ways. in the same way that all in the family couldn't huh. be made today, I think. Yeah. Um if you're skewering, um, oh boy, I don't have an example of the, on the tip of my tongue. Well, like Diversity Day. Yeah, There's Diversity no way Day. That's right. This is the episode where you, where you guys kind of parody racism and race relations by having an episode about this Diversity Day that just goes bad. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah. And like these characters end up being super hella racist yeah. without really knowing it. But like it, it couldn't fly today. It, it couldn't fly. I remember like when, uh, when Michael... Uh, yells at Kelly Kapoor in the, her first appearance, and and he does a fake Indian accent, and he's like, "Try my goopy goopy" or something yeah. like that, and yeah. and uh, just right in her face, and she slaps him, yeah. and goes away, and then he's kind of shame faced, mm-hmm. but it's never really addressed or anything exactly. like that. And uh, or like, what's the episode where y'all are at the Benihana? And one of the white guys can't tell two Asian women apart. So he, so marks, he marks on them one. with a with a magic marker. Yeah, yeah. you can't yeah. do that. Today. No, yeah. But at the, but like it's just, it's a show that has a heart, 
And if you watch it and see what you're trying to do, yes. you're actually trying to like... If you look at the big picture, yes. you absolutely yes. get that it is a humanistic point of view that's yeah. trying to bring people together and make the world a better place. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Do you miss The Office? I do sometimes. Yeah. I, I tell you, I really miss collaborating with a with an awesome group of people. The writers were fantastic and taking a scene and just trying to bring it to comedic life, having a great director, a great writer on the set, uh, an amazing team of comedic minds. Yeah. And, you know, we always made sure that the scene kind of tickled us in some way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, just... That's it's like it's digging into the dough. It's kneading the dough and and being in the kitchen and and cooking that that stuff up. And you know I don't know that I'll ever have that experience again the way that we had it on the office. Did you know that it was going to change everything? Did you know how big it was going to be? We we kind of did. It, it, oddly, we kind of did. I remember early on when we shot the pilot, we had lunch and it was Steve Carell and he actually kind of turned to us and we kind of did a little toast and he goes, you know, guys, this. This is probably going to be the job that we're known for for the rest of our lives. And this is 2004. He called it. He called it. And I, I didn't know. I was hoping beyond hope. But we almost got canceled a whole bunch of different times. But then all of a sudden in season two, we started to take off and spread. And um, and then we knew. Yeah. That's when we knew. Yeah. All of a sudden I was like, oh, my God. But for me, all I thought of was like, Oh my God! What a relief! I have a job for at least the next six years. This is amazing. Huh. <laughs> I yeah. gonna be able to buy a house. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and just like the collection of all stars on that cast, like you think about the success rate of everyone afterwards. Yeah, all y'all made it. <laughs> like all of you are doing like awesome work still, and it's like to get that assortment of people together for that long, making mm-hmm. content that good. The Greg Daniels, who uh, was the New York, was the uh, U.S. showrunner, I mean, mm-hmm. he just had an incredible eye for talent. He really did. Was he uh, doing most of the casting for it? He was, along with Allison Jones, our casting agent, uh, who is- Oh, a, this is one I always, she had a New Yorker profile about her. She's, she's like the best casting yes, agent she is, of all time, right? Uh, she is, and yeah. she's, uh, she's amazing at discovering uh, talent. And, um, you know, she works with Judd Apatow and- yeah. Um, Ian, Alberto Iannucci is that his name who does Veep and mm-hmm. you know top Paul Feig and top comic minds yeah. and I was lucky to be on one of her lists early on and that helped how did you get on her list well this is the the dance that you do as an actor in a place like LA so I wasn't really very well known and I just auditioned for her and I remember putting a weird comic spin on this scene for this indie film. And I remember the look on her face when she kind of was reading with me, like blah, 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 reading. And then all of a sudden she kind of looked up, she perked up, looked at me and was like, I was like, oh, <laughs> this guy can act and he's funny and he's huh. interesting. And I remember her like jotting down some <laughs> notes. And then after that, she would bring me in for pretty much everything. That's got to be a great moment when you see it happen on that person's yeah. face. Yeah. Okay, one more break here. When we come back, Rain talks about struggling to move beyond his iconic Dwight Schrute role. Also, some stories about Rain being a very, very poor, very, very struggling actor in New York City back in the day. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click. 
Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash minute. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Peter Sagal. Come try the only show that treats the news the way it deserves to be treated, roughly, with lots of tasteless comments. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Was there, so like post office, you have this iconic role and you have, I'm guessing, like a lot of freedom to pick and choose whatever you want to do. I mean, do you, one, do you actually have that freedom or two, are you typecast to be like in that vein for the rest of your yeah, career? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a struggle. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's a, it's a struggle being known as Dwight, um, playing an iconic character and especially a, a character that I think a lot of people... I did theater for 10 years before I even came out to L.A. Yeah. And I was doing... In New York? In New York and in the regions and tours and Broadway and off-Broadway. And I was doing experimental theater and I was doing Eugene O'Neill and Shakespeare and all kinds of different things. And then I kind of stumbled into doing comic characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but because Dwight was a little bit broad and uh, um, kind of off-center, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of people in showbiz that just think that that's what I do and that's all that I'm capable of doing. Yeah. So it has been a bit of a struggle to try and kind of educate people on, you know, some different facets of me as an actor. But, you know, fortunately, I made some money doing the TV show, so I get to kind of pick and choose a little bit more. I get to do movies like Permanent. Yeah. So it is both a challenge and it's also a a great opportunity and a great time. Yeah. I get to – I don't have to – I'm not worried about my rent. You know, when I was an actor <laughs> trying to pay my rent for 20 years, it's like, just give me give the me next work. I'll damn do that job. subway commercial. Yeah, whatever it's it fine. is. Yeah. And I did a lot of really? bad commercials back what's in the, the day what's to the, pay the rent. What's the baddest, worstest commercial you've ever done? I'll remember I did a commercial for Rolling Rock Beer, which oh, was- stop right there. Which was Sorry. a little bit uh, tough for me because as a Baha'is, Baha'is don't drink alcohol. Oh. And I was doing, but I needed the money, so I had this big moral quandary. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was tough. We shot it two days after nine eleven. Oh my! They in New York, in in L A. They okay. didn't cancel. They didn't oh. cancel the shoot, and it was, boy, I'll never forget just the oh. having to like drink fake beer and laugh at Ugh. a bar two days after nine eleven, and I already didn't really want That's to be doing rough. it. But you know the. You know that that twenty grand that came rolling in—that's the rate for commercials. Well, when it got it played a bunch on TV, I'm, so over I the am checks, in the, the wrong line of work. Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, you can make a lot more than that at commercials. Give me a break. See, but I don't know like, what, what commercial will they put me. I don't know. Oh, come on, you can be uh, in anything. Uh, yeah, I want to do the little like voiceover stuff on the pizza commercials. Oh yeah. For a while, Queen Latifah was the voice of Pizza Hut commercials. No kidding. I remember. It was great. I think I heard Ellen doing some kind of. How would you do? Right? How would you do that? What's your favorite pizza company? What would you say? Papa John's. The great thing about family is that it's wherever you want it to be. Papa John's, sauce kind of sweet. I Boom. Don't know, something. Boom. Bam. Bam. Boom. Hit me up, Papa John's, right now. Who would you shill for today? What do you love? I, anything. Any. Anything. <laughs> anything. Okay. okay. I remember when we were very pretentious in college, um, doing <laughs> we, experimental okay. theater. Me and my my group of friends uh-huh. in the late 80s early 90s mm-hmm. in in theater school and i remember we had a we had a conversation of would you ever do a commercial and we were smoking like filterless cigarettes and wearing berets and it was <laughs> three o'clock in the morning in greenwich village and then someone i remember someone said i would do a commercial 
for soy milk. <laughs> and we all nodded knowingly. Yeah. Like, but I would never do a commercial for the army. You know, we had this very uh-huh. kind of leftist discussion uh-huh. about what what would you what, what products you would, oh, would yeah. you promote? Oh yeah. But right now I would just you know. Yeah, but here's how I look at it. Look, yes. we do all this work in Haiti. And uh, I give some money there, and so I would do a commercial, and then a good portion of those funds would go yeah. to help uh, educate girls in Haiti. Yeah. So, Make boom. your money. What are you doing in Haiti? What's the work with that? Um, we founded a, a nonprofit called Lide, my wife and I, and a woman named Dr. Catherine Adams, who lives in Haiti. And uh, we have a staff of about 40 Haitians working with us to educate adolescent girls. So okay. we do arts education and literacy scholarships. We have a mobile computer lab, tutoring, um, anything we can do to help girls get a a leg up um, in their very difficult path and their very difficult journey in Haiti. And we're working in about 13 locations with about 500 girls. That's a lot. Yeah. I'm going down there a lot. I I am. I'm leaving Saturday, actually, to go down for about eight or nine days. We'll be doing some trainings with the staff and we'll have a board meeting, and we're bringing down a bunch of computers and medications and uh, office supplies and stuff yeah. like that. So, oh, very cool. Yeah, very cool. I want to talk more about your beret-wearing New York actor days. Okay. How long were you in New York? Uh, thirteen years. It's a long time. Yeah, eighty-six through ninety-nine. Yeah. How time. broke were you? Yeah, I lived in an abandoned uh, beer brewery. <laughs> Uh, I was essentially a squatter. Um, this was in the in the far reaches of Williamsburg, almost to almost <laughs> Be- to Brownsville. Before it was cool. Before it was cool. This was like '89. Wow. And uh, we had no heat, no running water. There were rats. Uh, we had no shower. What? Yeah. And um, but I had free rent. So well, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> you were squatting. Because the the landlord was like. Was this crazy Dutch guy? Remember, it's New Amsterdam, so yeah. there are actually some Dutch landlords yeah, yeah. there. That has, but he had this thick Dutch accent. He's like, "I'm going to turn this beer brewery into uh, artist lofts, but you move in, you'll be artist here, live for free, and then when I'm fixing up, I show people, oh look, we got artists living in there." <laughs> so we were like you the were guinea prop. pigs. Yeah, we were the like when you're dressing a house, you know, we were the we were the, but it was. Um, it was it was awful. I remember once being on the phone. There was a phone, okay, a landline, a landline. And, what are those? And I had a uh, my, my parka on. It was so cold. It was like ten below. Because there's zero. no heating. And I was talking to my mom, and I remember spitting on the floor and watching my spit freeze. Oh my god! So that's poor. That is poor. Yeah. Could you use the bathroom in the house? So you'd have to go down one floor, <laughs> and there was a ratty old toilet. And when I say ratty, I mean the rats would scatter. <laughs> And um, so there was a toilet, but we would often, we drank a lot of cranberry juice for some reason. We had these cranberry juice bottles. Okay. And then we would pee, me and my friend John, who were roommates, we would pee Wait, in the cranberry it... juice bottle and then in the morning bring the bottles down and pour them in the toilet because oh we didn't want to battle the rats. Oh God. You know? And even in a place where you were squatting, you still couldn't afford your own room. You had a yeah, roommate. and we were, we were sharing a room <laughs> after all that. No, it was a kind of a, it was a big workshop room where they used to build stuff, mm-hmm. and we were in like the foreman's little bird's nest that was oh up God. above the room. Oh my and, God! And uh, because then we had there was no heat, so we we could plug in one of those little radiators, electric radiators, because uh, there was electricity and it would stay warm enough. So that's why we were there. Was there ever a moment in those broke, broke, broke New York days where you're like? Screw it. I'm going to 
go learn finance and like be a banker bro. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't do it. I whenever I talk to actors and they're like, oh, I love acting and I also love flower arranging. I'm like, just go be a flower arranger. <laughs> Whatever you can do besides acting, really? you have to go do that thing. <laughs> I didn't know that I was necessarily going to be successful at it. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, maybe one day I'll move to like Minneapolis or Portland and just be a part of a small theater company and teach on the side or mm-hmm. something like that, be a substitute teacher or something like that. But um, I never could consider leaving acting. Really? I just, it was too much in my, in my blood at that yeah. point. I needed huh. to do it. What else is on your horizon? You got this movie permanent um, that is yeah. so it was released kind of a small release last year. Yeah, it's it's been re- it's being released right now on Blu-ray and gotcha. DVD, gotcha. and uh, it came out in theaters a few months ago. And um, uh, so we are trying to encourage people to buy it and rent it and and own it and cherish it because it's a beautiful it. little movie. And I have a. Big, there's a big blockbuster called The Meg with Jason Statham and a giant shark that I'm in coming out this summer. I'm developing a TV show at AMC. What's the show? Um, or can you say? Yeah, I can say what was in the press release, which is it's about a, an alien uh, who in, invades the body of a of a middle-aged loser living in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> and uh, so it's an alien among us kind of show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a, really a lot of fun. Okay. And, um, you know, developing some stuff, working on some stuff with Soul Pancake, trying to figure out what's the Soul Pancake show where we go to Brownsville, Texas, and uh, meet the uh, the immigrant kids yeah. separated from their parents. And what's that show? How can we do something about this this topic? Well, and with an issue like that, like how do you make content that reaches the people you actually want to reach right? and reaches the folks whose minds you want to change? Yep. I think so much of content around politics right now is people preaching to their choirs. Well said. Well said. All right. What is the, what is the, mo- what is the brashest thing you've ever done out of annoyance with some rando at Starbucks asking you to, like, do Dwight? Oh, good one. I've certainly been sometimes in a bad mood. I've been like rude sometimes. Um, what's interesting is if you've been on a TV show, mm-hmm. people think that they get to touch you. <laughs> it's like they, being pregnant. They, yeah, touch the yeah belly. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I've watched hundreds of your episodes multiple they times. Just touch maybe. You? So what did they come up. They just come up and they just touch me. Where do they touch you? They touch me all over. They will grab my <laughs> hand or my arm and they will put their arms around me. And oh, it's no. like it's like one of those Disney characters. It's like when you no. see Minnie Mouse at the, at Disneyland and the kids run up touch. and hug, you yeah. know. So that's been, uh, that's been uh, difficult. My favorite thing, I think, is like whenever they're like, you know that show The Office? Yeah. You, you look like the guy who played <laughs> Dwight. And I'm like, yeah, I... I get that a lot. It's not, mm-hmm. not, oh, that's not You'll say you. it's not me? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and you walk away. And they, yes, and they're very perturbed and, and yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. Rain Wilson, nicest guy in the world. Thank you for your time today. Sam, thanks this for having me. This is a delight. Show. I had a blast. All right, man. Thank you. Many thanks to Rain Wilson. His film is called Permanent. It's out now on demand, on Hulu, on Blu ray. What is. I don't even know what Blu-ray is, but it's there. Uh, many thanks to Rain for stopping by. Listeners, for our weekly wrap on Friday, do not forget to send me your best things. I know lots of you have listened since the beginning of the show and have never shared your best thing. Be my best thing this week by sharing your best thing with me. 
Okay? No best thing is too small. Whatever the best part of your week was, record yourself. Send that file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, all right, all right. That's it for now. I'll see you Friday. Talk soon. <laughs>